Hello and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Talkless, the show where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. This is episode eight, our final episode of 2017. Can you believe it, Rifki? What what a year it's been, Uri. It's been so crazy. None can deny that. <laughs> a lot of developments, a lot of new things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, the elephants in the room, the one main uh, issue that everyone is thinking about is the creation of the Talking Talkless podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a real game changer from the feedback we've gotten from you guys. I mean, it seems like it's the highlight of your week and we so appreciate all the support. Um, please keep those emails coming because we will respond to everyone. Yeah, guys, just the you know, public service announcement. It takes us time to to get through all those messages and emails, but we will respond to each and every one. And we really just appreciate the overwhelming tsunami of emails that we have been receiving. It means the world. But what about looking forward, Uri? Is there anything you're particularly looking forward to in 2018? Well, I mean, yes, it's been a crazy year and we're living in scary times. But you know what? I think it's always scary times. Um, But I'm also very optimistic uh, about where things are heading. And I'm hoping that uh, things turn out okay. And I'm also keeping a close eye on that story we reported last week about the UFOs. Um, I'm really curious to see what happens with that. Yeah, I'm. I'm also, you know, spending some time uh, looking up at the skies and listening in, and and I'm pretty optimistic that I'm. I'm pretty close to finding something. All right. Well, keep us updated. I'm excited about that. Yeah. What about you, Rifki? Well, I can't think of anything too crazy. I uh, I have a lot of family in Israel, and a bunch of people are actually planning on spending some time this summer in America. So I'm pretty excited about that. But um, besides for that, I'm just excited to to go forward. I wish I were as optimistic as you in general, but um, <laughs> what okay. Do you do about well, that? let's hope for the best. I mean. Well, why don't we get into our first topic? What do you want to talk about, Rifki? Okay, great. Um, last week, on the last night of Hanukkah, my social media, and I assume yours too, Uri, was flooded with the sudden news that Trump had commuted the prison sentence of Shalom Rubashkin, who had been the CEO of Agri-Processors, a kosher slaughterhouse in Postville, Iowa. Rubashkin, a Lubavitch chassid, was sentenced to 27 years after being convicted of 86 counts of financial fraud, including bank fraud, mail-and-wire fraud, and money laundering which is a highly disproportionate sentence compared to others who have been convicted of similar crimes. Many assume that the reason he got so many years is because of all the charges that were dismissed, like hiring underage workers, and the years of citations for animal cruelty, food safety, environmental safety, hiring of undocumented workers, and child labor. The reaction to Rubashkin's release has been what I can only describe as jubilant. Upon the news of release, thousands of Chabad Hasidim filled the streets of Brooklyn, dancing and singing about the great miracle. And since then, the celebration has continued. People are posting pictures of Rubashkin's sightings in shuls, in restaurants, dancing outside his parents' home in Brooklyn, and they've seen him visiting the Ohel of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And it's not just Chabad. Other Orthodox Jews are sharing their joy for his release. And, you know, it's not just Orthodox Jews. There are plenty of people um, who are really excited about this. So, Uri, what do you think? Are we happy about this? How, How do you feel about this whole thing? I think it's obviously a little bit complicated. The reactions that you're referencing in terms of the jubilation and the uh, excitement, almost like turning him into a hero, um, I am very uncomfortable with that. But I think the reason why that's happening is because these people are reacting against the fact that he was given such a disproportionate sentence and that it can be argued that his court case was anti-Semitic in the way that he was treated um, and convicted. And so I think they're just reacting against that. And if that had never happened, if he had been given, let's say, three, four years in prison, 
and then he got out after four years, I don't think he would have been greeted as a hero when he got out and home from prison. I see there being two sides or two extremes in terms of the Jewish reaction. You have a lot of people who tend to be more on the left who are clearly very uncomfortable with this whole thing. And the way they're expressing their discomfort is by criticizing not the release itself, because the release, it's harder to criticize that because he it's a fact that he was given a very disproportionate sentence, and it's also a fact that politicians on both sides right, right. of the aisle have, ex- have publicly expressed support right. for his release. In the clemency, I think he uh, Trump actually included language saying people from uh, Orrin Hatch who's a Republican from Nevada, I think, uh, to Nancy Pelosi. Right, right. So these people who are criticizing the situation are not criticizing the release, they're criticizing the what you call the jubilation. But I think they're really, the, those a lot of those people at least, are just uncomfortable with the whole release in general, and they're just expressing that as discomfort with the jubilation. And on the other hand, you have people who seem to be ignoring the fact that this man is a criminal one way or another, and they're treating him as a hero, which, yes, does make me feel uncomfortable. Um, I, I just think I think this is one of those situations where there's also a lot of ironies. As soon as we found out about uh, this news, um, we were you and I were kind of in this group text, and um, I responded kind of tongue in cheek, but I said. Uh, gotta love those left-wing Jews, though. The prison system is broken and horrible and ruining our country, except when it puts Jews in jail. Then it's good. You're ridiculous. I, I just think that what I was getting at was it bothers me when you have well-intentioned and good-hearted people, Jewish people, who try to stand up for oppressed people or for people who are being treated unfairly by the government or by other groups. Um, But a lot of times those people have somewhat of a blind spot when it comes to their fellow Jews. And I feel that they can sometimes be overly critical and harsh when it comes to their own people who you would think they would have the most sympathy for. I I think I, I in some ways agree with that. I think it is strange how people who may be strong advocates for, uh, either eliminating the prison system entirely, right, in its most extreme, and don't believe in the harsh sentences that comes with our current criminal justice system. Um, I agree that, you know, there, there is something that a little bit strange about that. But I think the the fundamental argument on sort of the left-wing side, which I, I'm going to call myself to, to put my, I want to put myself in that camp, is that there are thousands of federal prisoners who are sitting behind bars who are there for crazy long sentences that are ridiculously inappropriate. And when we don't care about those, right? When not just Chabad, but when people in general, when when we don't make a stink, when we don't stand up, when we don't try to help anyone, and then this man who really there are people, there, there's a lot of stories you can read, the forward, I know you don't love the forward, but the forward is the one who, you know, 10, 12 years ago really broke this story about everything that was going on in the Rubashkin plant. Um, there were people who were in serious pain. They, they didn't have health insurance. They were getting paid, you know, $6 an hour. These people got no safety training and got, you know, cut off their hands and cut off their fingers. And, you know, that was it for them. They, in accidents. They, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because there was no, right, uh, right. Should be clear. It's not, they didn't cut it off on purpose and no one did it to them on purpose. Um, there, these things were all happening under the watch of agri-processors. They let these things happen. These people cause way more pain than someone, for for example, who is a 
weed dealer who has weight, who also right. has plenty of years okay. behind bars, but we don't care about that. And the, the optics, the truth is that the optics are not the most important thing. Obviously, justice is also very important. But the optics of hundreds and thousands of religious men and women in joy and jubilation after something like this I, I just I can't I can't even fathom it. It seems so ridiculous to me and and embarrassing. I think you're making a very unfair assertion when you say that people care about Rubashkin, Look at their but social they don't media care. accounts. Yeah. You can count the articles. I mean, what do you mean? Well, we spoke we've spoken in a previous episode about uh, people who criticize Israel and whether or not it's fair to call that a double standard because they're only criticizing Israel. And you said it was fair for them to only criticize Israel if that's what they're passionate about. And here, people are passionate about their friend or their relative or their community member who got a very unfair sentence and they are excited and happy that he is now free and with his family and home. So it doesn't if you ask them do you care about all the other people who have unfair sentences i'm pretty sure a lot of them would say yes i do care but that's just not my personal mission that i'm gonna fight for and i think that's totally legitimate it might not be the most praiseworthy worthy thing but i think it's fair and legitimate the other thing i want to say is that this was also just a very high profile case in the way that it was prosecuted in the way that his plant was raided by the fbi and so it was high profile from the beginning. So every level of it and every um, development in the story is going to be high profile. And I don't think it's fair to say, why is he, this getting all the attention when there are all these other cases that aren't getting attention? I mean, that is a valid point, but I don't think it's fair to criticize Wait, I'm not saying him. that it's unfair that this case got so much attention. That, that's not the claim I'm making. I'm You're saying, saying all the people care so much about him and him getting released and him being sentenced unfairly yeah. when there's so many other people. So uh, my point is this whole case was so high profile and in the news from the beginning that that is the reason why people are even aware of it and, and fighting on his behalf, let's I, say. I, I think that's completely not true. That's not why people are aware. They're aware because they feel like a marginalized group and they no, feel because, like a member of their group was maligned and put in prison right, completely unfairly. Right, because you know what? They're unf- so this unfortunately, is, this is what they care I hate, about. I hate to say this, but there are many Jews in prison for all kinds of things. You don't see this type of support and rallying behind any Jonathan Jewish Pollard. prison. Oh, of course, that's that's a different situation, but you know that's not what I'm talking about. And so I don't think, you, you know, if somebody from the outside was seeing this and hearing that argument, they might think, oh, Jews will just support any criminal who happens to be Jewish and fight for his release. And I don't think that's true. You I don't think this think was a unique just, case. Just in terms of the optics, you don't think that that's the impression that a random Jewish most sees? No, I, I just, I'm saying I think they would get that impression, but I don't think that's the truth. I think it's un, it's unfair to give them that impression because it isn't the truth. The other thing I want to say is that, and what to me what makes this case so complicated is, as you alluded to in your introduction, there were all these other violations that to most people I think are the primary thing that they think about when they think about Rubashkin and the situation right. in his case, which were all of the illegal immigrants that he had hired, the very sub-minimum wage that he was paying them, five, six dollars an hour, um, all the lack of safety precautions, the mistreatment of the workers, the mistreatment of the animals. These are all terrible things. Um, and I think most people would agree that this is terrible, I guess, to varying degrees of how terrible. And what's and I honestly don't know all the facts and reasons why those things were dismissed and he wasn't convicted for those things. But what, bo- what, what, what bothers me about it is that we live in a, in a society of laws and, and rules and we have rule of law. And if for whatever reason those charges were dismissed, it is totally outside of the law 
slash illegal slash obviously unfair to make his sentence harsher for the bank fraud because of the other things that he's not being charged for. And so too, if he wasn't charged for those things, if we if we live in a society that believes in innocent until proven guilty, then it's not fair to criticize him for these things right. that he was well, not charged for. Well, that's the same thing for. that happened with O.J. Simpson, right? O.J. Simpson was acquitted for the murder and he was later convicted for this minor felony and he was given a crazy disproportionate sentence you know, largely, we, we mostly assume because of the murder that people assume that he went mm-hmm. unpunished for. Um, I, we have to close off this segment. The last thing I just keep thinking about and keep coming back to is that one of the things that also really rubs me the wrong way about Rubashkin, and this is about the release. Even though generally I'm not a big fan of our penal system, the way in general a criminal justice system, I believe, should be set up is on the basis of trying to create... Um, Trying to rehabilitate people, trying to say to people, look, what you did was wrong and you have really, really hurt your standing in society because you've really affected the world. You've really hurt other people. And part of what it should be to go through the criminal justice system is to really repent in a weird way. Obviously, that was a really firm way of saying it. But what I really mean is a form of tshuva, right? Is a form of recognizing what you've done and vow to really, for the rest of your life, try to fix it. That's why I really don't believe in the death penalty, because I believe the death penalty is our our, our way of saying people can't change. People can't become better people. Really, I think the responsibility of anyone who's released from prison is to say, I look at what I've done. I look who I've become. And now my responsibility for the rest of my life is to fix myself and to repair the world in whatever way I can. And Rubashkin really hasn't gone through that process. The few you know, has he said anything? Yeah, the few statements that he made are almost like... um almost like glee, right? Of like, oh my God, it kind of a little Trumpy and kind of like, um, you know, the other prisoners were shocked. They couldn't believe it. You know, it was so crazy, like, you know, defied all the odds. It was completely crazy. Instead of like anything contrite or emotional in any way, you see him dancing, you see, like, it doesn't feel like there's a sense of like, here's how I've hurt people and here's how I plan to make amends. And that to me is one of the things that, that bothers me a little bit. And that bothers me in general. And that's a, that's a larger conversation about the criminal justice system. But I think at this point, we'll leave it at that. And we'd love to hear your feedback about this segment. Please email us at talkingtalklistpodcast at gmail.com. I hear the train a coming. It's rolling around the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down to San Anton As we discussed in the beginning of today's episode, it is the end of 2017. None can deny that. And... I think most people would agree it's been a pretty crazy year. And even not just with our podcast. I was going to say, even <laughs> though the advent of the Talking Tachas podcast is an earth shattering and mind blowing development in world history, I think when most people say kind of like the neutral PC statement of, wow, it's been a crazy year, what they really mean is crazy about Trump, right? So I think that's fair. <laughs> um, we want to get into that a little bit and taking that issue. A little bit closer to home, I want to talk about the relationship that the Jewish community and the Orthodox Jewish community, even more specifically, has with Trump, towards Trump, um, especially in light of two recent developments, one of them being the Rubashkin story, and the other one being uh, Trump's announcement about the embassy moving uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. 
One of the things that I think about a lot and that I just find very interesting is how, you know, politics, you know, stereotypically has always been something uncomfortable to talk about, let's say, in mixed company when you don't know what the opinions are of the other people and you don't want to offend people, you want right. to be polite. But politics I think, and religion. Right. These are like the things that you don't <laughs> so bring let's up. approach both. Right, exactly. But I, I think I think this past year it's gotten just crazy uh, in that sense. Like especially like before Thanksgiving, you were seeing I was seeing all these articles about mm-hmm. like how to avoid all right. the political talk at your table. And the number one piece of advice was just don't be with those family members, which obviously as we discussed. Oh, I actually didn't see that. Oh, I saw that everywhere. It was <laughs> that's really kind of extreme sad and see, sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think you know with Trump, it's so extreme where you have so many people who voted for Trump and supported him or currently support him and are scared to even admit that and say that in front of other people. Um, I guess I'll say, full disclosure, I did not vote for Trump, and I'm pretty sure you didn't vote for him either. Well, let's not make assumptions. <laughs> okay. Um, I didn't vote for Hillary either, and I did vote. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> um, but I do know a lot of people and people who I respect, um, people even in my family who voted for Trump, and some of whom still defend him. Actually, I'm wondering, do you know anyone who voted for Trump and now regrets it? That's an interesting question. I feel like I have heard people say things like that, but when I think about like the people that I know well, I don't think so. Yeah, not for me either. I do know people, though, and I would say maybe even the majority of people who voted, who voted for him, who will say now that... They don't think they made a mistake in voting for him, but they really expected slash hoped that he would rise to the occasion Mm -hmm. um, once elected and that they will readily acknowledge and admit that he, for the most part, has not risen Uh to the occasion. Um, But they will still say that they made the right decision. And if there were another election tomorrow, they would still vote for him. Right. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience also. Yeah. Um, but I guess the, the part of the conversation that I want to get into right now is you have so many people, especially a lot of Jews, who just hate Trump with such a passion. And I think for many legitimate reasons, but it gets it gets back to the panel that we discussed, the, an- the panel on anti-Semitism, where the people on the panel were basically arguing that when it comes to the problem of anti-Semitism, the main and perhaps only source of anti-Semitism in America that we have to be worried about is from the alt-right and which all goes back up to Trump, who is himself a white supremacist and basically a neo-Nazi in hiding or something along those lines. And you, you hear a lot of that maybe more from the extreme left, but I think also from the less extreme left as well. And now you have these two situations that seem to clearly be pretty pro-Jewish and pro-Israel, moving the embassy, freeing Rubashkin. It's a little bit hard to say that this is coming from a neo-Nazi, but it's like, if you have that narrative, then you're going to, then I, I heard, I saw a lot of people on Facebook complaining about the, the Rubashkin thing is saying like, oh, Trump's just trying to suck up to the Jews and make them like, trick them into liking him. Like, can, is there anything he could do or say to make people not, you know, how do we, how do we relate to this? What do you think about it? All right. I mean, my first thought is, maybe this is me being cynical in a different way, but I don't think the reason Trump gave clemency to Rubashkin is because he was sucking up to the Jews. I think he did it because Rubashkin has a lot of money and they've given to many political causes over the years. And that's it. I think it's like very simple. And I think similarly, the embassy move, I also don't think was a principled choice. I think the embassy move was very calculated. It's about the base. It's about what the voters are looking for, right? He made a promise to his voters and he 
is thinking about his political future. I don't think, I think I agree with you, right? When, if someone would say, is Trump an anti-Semite? I think it's pretty simplistic to say the answer is yes. I don't think Trump's an anti-Semite. The same way if someone said, does Trump hate black people? I don't think it's that simple. I don't think Trump hates black people. I don't think Trump hates Jews. I don't think Trump particularly cares. I think Trump cares about Trump. I think Trump cares about continuing his own interests. And whatever falls into that, great. Whatever doesn't fall into that, great. He knows that his base of voters is anti-immigration, so he plays that up. He knows that there's a a large group of angry people that want to see the embassy move, so he plays that up. To me, it doesn't seem like there's there are strong principles behind anything, which is one of the things that I think makes him so dangerous, that there doesn't really seem to be this cohesive way of thinking about the world. Right. Well, I mean, let me shift gears a little bit. Part of what bothers me about this whole thing is that for someone who calls themselves a Zionist and somebody who believes in the importance and centrality of Jerusalem, the embassy move should be seen as a positive thing, at least in theory. Maybe the timing wasn't right. Maybe he should Maybe he should have included something about the Palestinians also in his statement. But just the concept, to be against the concept. And I'll also just add that in Israel, across the political spectrum, this is seen as a positive development. And there really isn't much um, disagreement, except on the really, really far left fringes, to say that this was a bad I mean, I think that's decision. True. I think that's true with the leadership. But I definitely have friends who live in Israel who... Don't, don't think that. Whatever the case may be, I guess what bothers me about it is that I find it very unfortunate when people let politics supersede their values and the things that are actually important to them. So in this case, when you have Jews and Zionistic Jews who it's so important to them to criticize Trump and that Trump can, can do no right, that they have to be against this decision, even though in their ideology, it's actually a positive thing. Um, that bothers me just as much as the people on the right who, to them, Obama could do no right. And uh, anything that he said or did had to be bad and had to be right. seen as negative and evil, regardless of what yeah. it was. I understand what you're saying. I think like uh, one of the things that I've been discussing with uh, some of my left-wing friends is, you know, if Obama had made the exact same statement, how would we feel? And one of the universal things was, yes, I, they are definitely more uncomfortable with the idea of Trump doing it than Obama because they think if Obama did it, he was making a calculated decision based on conversations with other world leaders, based on sort of a rational thought process of, okay, if the reaction to this is X, then we'll do Y. If the reaction to this is Z, then we'll do A, as opposed to Trump, where it's like, I got to make this statement and who knows what the hell is going to happen next, but I got to make this statement anyway, which is scary. I think that's a pretty legitimate thing to think. Right. It's interesting. So far, thank God, it seems like nothing's blown, you know, nothing's been getting blown out of proportion. But I I think that fear is legitimate. Yeah, I I heard I heard an Israeli um, author, Yossi Klein Halevi, gave Mm -hmm. a talk a couple weeks ago um, in Jerusalem. My parents were actually there and heard and my dad told me that one of the things that he said, he was asked about the what he thinks about the Trump embassy move. And he said something along the lines of, um, yeah, like Trump is seems to be a crazy person. But maybe it took a crazy person to make this move and and make this statement and nobody else would have had the guts to do it. Like, it's an interesting take. And Mm -hmm. like you can say and I think what he's basically saying is you can agree or say that Trump is unstable and it's very scary. But 
this seems to be a positive development and like we still have to keep an eye on him for a million other reasons but let's take this and and run with it and try to make the best of it yeah. and and hope it leads to positive developments for Israel for the Jews and hopefully for peace with the Palestinians oh I mean yeah actually one thing I saw that was kind of funny I don't know if it's true or not it wasn't corroborated by any major news sources but people were posting in a lot of these Jewish groups I'm in um, on Facebook like that his advisors especially the people who Trump's are, advisors yeah Trump's advisors who are more connected to the Jewish community have been kind of putting out the call to prominent members of the Orthodox community that they need to tell their followers to be writing to Trump and calling in, thanking him because he's getting pissed that he's not getting a more more positive reaction really and that he's thinking about taking, you know, not taking it back necessarily, but, you know, keeping that in mind when making future decisions, which is terrifying to me. Yeah. I of, mean, of course, that's, it's not like that was published in the New York Times. This is just something that I'm seeing in a couple of different Facebook groups, but it's something that, you know, definitely frightened right. me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if that was in fact true. What I'll just close this segment by saying is that, um, yes, it's been a crazy year. As a Jew, as a Zionist, um, things are uncertain and things are scary, as they almost always are. And that Trump, whether he does it on purpose or not, or whether he knows what he's doing or not, um, will move things in the right direction. Hopefully for the whole world, not just for the Jews. But yes, beautiful sentiment. Before we close the calendar year, I want to mention something that has affected both me personally and also the larger Jewish world. Jerisha, a learning institute in Manhattan, was founded almost 40 years ago as the premier place for women to study Torah seriously. They have recently made the difficult decision to close their physical doors in their Upper West Side location. Now, I want to be clear, it's not closing, right? Drisha will continue to host classes and lectures in Manhattan, and is currently in talks with several synagogues around the city to arrange for event space. Its summer kollels for college students and young professionals, as well as its high school summer program, will be housed at the Brompton Center at NYU. But with the closing of the Beit Midrash, there's a real sadness. Drisha is a place that I, and many other women, came to feel like the closest to my physical space to learn in Manhattan. When I wanted to attend a shir, I checked the Drisha website. When I was on the west side and I had an hour to kill, I would stop in at Drisha and sit in the Beit Midrash, maybe learning, but maybe also chatting with the friends and teachers that I knew would be there. Dozens of women who went through Drisha's rigorous scholar circle went out to be the first serious female educators at high schools and seminaries around the world. Many of us feel this loss personally, and I wanted to end this episode with a hakarat hatov to Drisha for the Torah that I learned there and the Torah that I was taught indirectly as a product of Drisha. You have changed the landscape of Torah learning for Jewish women, and for that, the Jewish people are eternally grateful. Thanks, Rifki. We will miss you, Drisha, and we will miss you 2017. But here we come, 2018. We cannot wait for all the exciting topics we are going to bring you and discuss with you and for you. We look forward to you continuing to send all your amazing feedback and ideas, and we are still making our way. That is our our commitment to finish off 2017, is we will get through the rest of these emails and respond to all of you <laughs> with your feedback. And Keep uh, them coming. Talking Talkless Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.